0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between, Interstate Batteries has the batteries for your everyday needs. If you need to stop into a local retail store, You can do it. They have thousands of retail stores all over the United States, and they have battery specialists that work there that can answer any question you may have. Or if you want to go to interstatebatteries.com and find out more information about the company as a whole and all of the batteries that they offer, you can do that. Interstate Batteries,
1: outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Transition Wild Podcast, brought to you by Expedition Archery. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 59, where we talk chronic wasting disease in Colorado with Matt Dunfee. Hello, and thanks again for tuning into the Transition Wild Podcast, the number one source for Western big game hunting. Can you believe it? We're already in 2020. It seems like such a kind of a weird thing to say, right? Like, I remember being a, a younger kid or in high school, I'd be like, ah, twenty twenty, that's a that's a ways off, and here it is, uh, <laughs> starting a new decade. And for this podcast, I started this in October of twenty seventeen, so we're over two years in on this on this uh, endeavor. And it, I have to say, it's been a it's been a fun ride. It's been a wild ride. It's been a cool ride. I've been able to talk with a lot of interesting guests from product companies to everyday DIYers to biologists to hunting outfitters. It's been, it's been really, really cool. And I've learned a lot and hopefully you guys have learned a thing or two and found it interesting along the way. So I appreciate you tuning in every other week. We, we release a new episode twice a month. So I appreciate you standing by and uh, and listening. If you get a chance, search Transition Wild on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, wherever you listen to it at, and subscribe. It'd be much much appreciated. And if you would be so kind, leave that five star review. At uh, really means a lot and certainly helps a lot with the podcast ratings and hopefully getting out to more listeners. So thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning into the podcast. My guest today is Matt Dunphy, and he's the director of the CWD Alliance. And this is an episode I've wanted to record for a while, and finally got around to doing it. And it's really interesting because for me, I, I guess I just needed the self-validation of, you know, where where we're at with chronic wasting disease because it's it's been a topic for a while. It was kind of big, um, you know, back in the mid-2000s, and then it's kind of taken a second wind, and I really wanted to get a grip and feel for where we're at in current state, particularly this episode is revolving around Colorado, although it applies to, um, you know, many states across the country. But we're talking Colorado, and Matt, he's he's a really well-spoken guy. He certainly knows his stuff. And i'll I'll just leave you with this. I before this episode, I was kind of not I knew it was a problem, but I didn't know it was as big of a problem. And I'll just leave you with this interesting topic uh, or or fact, I guess, from a neighboring state, Wyoming. They, up until recently, they have not done any sort of management action plan revolving around chronic wasting disease in their state with deer and elk. And because of that, they are seeing prevalence prevalence rates of 40 to 50 percent in their deer and elk herds, which is pretty damn scary. Colorado's well below that, and um, you know many other states are as well because they've been actively managing it. If left unmanaged, this can grow, and uh, it can be a, a a crazy snowball effect. So I'm not going to divulge too many details. I just wanted to throw that out there at the beginning of the podcast to, to make you aware that, hey, this is something that's real. It's always deadly, and uh, it's something that we as sportsmen and hunters and outdoorsmen should all take note of and get involved and become more actively involved in testing our deer and elk and try to provide more data to help get ahead of this disease. So it's a longer episode, but man, it is a it is really informational I really enjoyed having Matt on the show, so let's not wait any longer. Let's get Matt Dumpy on the line. Before we begin, today's episode is brought to you by Expedition Archery, manufacturer of the world's finest archery experience. Expedition bows combine aerospace-level quality, innovative designs, and a fluid feel serious hunters demand. Test drive one today at your nearest archery retailer and view their full lineup at expeditionarchery.com. Why settle for status quo when opportunity and adventure awaits? Make your next hunt an expedition. All right, on the line with us now, Matt Dunphy. How are you today, Matt?
0: I'm doing great, Adam. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Did the, did the holidays treat you well? How was, how was Christmas and, and recent New Year's?
0: Uh, They were very good, all very very quiet, which is uh, the best way to have them. I actually was able to get into the woods a little bit. Um, My family and kids were on the off rotation of the in-laws this year, so it was nice and quiet and uh, fairly white here in Colorado.
1: So, yeah, it was a good one. (laughs) Got to love that. Got to love that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Love the snow, love the cold. Yeah, yeah. We definitely need it. And uh, what uh, you're in Fort Collins, Colorado. Is that correct? I am. Yep. Got it. And is that are you a are you a rare Colorado native or did you grow up in some other part of the world? Oh, you had to ask that.
0: I am so (laughs) close to being native. Uh, Unfortunately, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate, uh, but I was actually (laughs) born in California, and then uh, got a little bit of redemption because we moved from California when I was three, apparently right to Fairplay, Colorado. And uh, any listeners that have been to Fairplay know that that's a pretty rugged town. House was right about at 10,000 feet. You kind of look out the kitchen window at uh, uh, Timberline. So I like to think that I'm more or less native because the introduction, from sunny California to, to minus 40 fair play was a brutal one.
1: <laughs> I bet, I bet. Well, since it since it was in your very well adolescent years, we'll, we will give you the status of, of native okay. Colorado for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> I appreciate it.
0: I'll, I'll take the honorary Colorado.
1: <laughs> well, very cool. And, you know, doing some, some reading and kind of following up on a little bit of your background, you've got a pretty extensive... Um, Background in wildlife, your education, you know what we're what we're doing now. Tell us a little bit about like you know growing up. Uh, are you into hunting? Um, tell us a little bit about Matt Dunphy from a bigger picture.
0: Oh sure, well yeah, I am busy, but it's my own darn fault. Um, <laughs> kind of born and bred in the outdoor tradition. My uh, my dad worked for the Forest Service. He was a both a firefighter and a law enforcement officer for the Forest Service. So that allowed me to grow up. Pretty near uh, public lands, you might say. The Forest Service was my backyard. So, all of the things that I like to think make uh, living in Colorado great are the things that I did and still do, including hunting, fishing, hiking, um, snowshoeing, and and all that stuff. And as I said, continue to do that today. And uh, you know, I think growing up in that place with what my dad did also. Sort of set the direction of what I now do professionally um, with the Wildlife Management Institute. I've been working with them for almost, golly, I think almost fifteen years now. Um, did a brief stint with them in Washington D.C. where I learned a lot of things, including I don't need to be in Washington D.C. <laughs> and uh, was <laughs> Good thankfully <call>. able, <laughs> thankfully able to move back here. So yeah, I'm still here in Fort Collins and plan to be here for uh, quite a while. And um, you know, professionally. I I, I haven't figured out what I want to do with my life yet, and so I have my fingers in a bunch of different um, pots related to natural resources, things like CWD that we'll talk about more today, uh, as well as hunter and angler recruitment retention reactivation, Um, a lot of conservation policy work, as well as kind of a new thing that I'm trying to coordinate with several others nationally, and that is how do we make... Conservation and natural resources more relevant to more Americans, um, knowing that those of us who hunt and fish and are out there in the woods, we get it and uh, we're paying for it. But there's a whole lot of Americans who never will do some of those things, but they do value nature and they don't really have a place um, to either fund conservation or um, let it be relevant to their life. So we're trying to figure out uh, how to crack that.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know what's what's interesting? I had um an outfitter on my podcast and he does a lot of work with like the CPW and outreach mm. programs and um kind of like shaping people who are not hunters into and introducing them to the outdoors. So they do a lot of work with youth and and college interns that are kind of going into the field of wildlife and you know it's very surprising to me like how many legislation officials, policy makers are um Kind of unfamiliar with hunting, and it's kind of scary when it comes to tar standpoint. So, it's it's good to hear that you are very well vested and have grown up in that lifestyle, and you totally get it, which certainly helps. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, it does, and and you're right. That's one of the challenges I think we, as a culture, in this sort of precious um, nation that we have, where we've we've got this amazing thing called public ownership of wildlife, it's one of the things we've got to really deal with, and that. Um, the the way we as a people look at natural resources has changed a whole lot. You know, when we started this model of um, let's, let's use dollars from hunters, anglers, shooting sports participants to fund conservation, you know, that worked when everybody was hunting and fishing and shooting. But now when less than 20% of us do, it means that the burden of all of that management that the rest of the 80% of Americans need, it doesn't really have a funding source. And so yeah. we have to find a way to kind of, Join forces, make sure that all those who want to hunt and fish are given pathways to learn how to do so. And and those that don't want to choose those activities, that we give them essentially a marketplace um, to... Express their values politically as well as monetarily, and we've done a poor job at doing that. So I'm hoping we can change that course here in the next decade.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it's it's 2020, so we got a we got a new start for a new decade. <laughs> we got to get on it. <laughs> so tell us about uh, obviously, uh, as you know, we're here today to talk about chronic wasting disease in Colorado. But tell us about the Wildlife uh, Management Institute. What what exactly is that organization?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, WMI, Wildlife Management Institute, has been around for um, over a century and It's a little-known organization, and we like to keep it that way. Thank you very much. Uh, It's never been large. It's uh, usually been no more than uh, 13 or so individuals in its past, but WMI has had a massive footprint. So a lot of the big pieces of legislation and conservation initiatives that we know of today, things like the Farm Bill, things like the Endangered Species Act, um, WMI had... The heaviest hand in writing, in helping push on the hill, um, you know, you can look at some some stats early on. Uh, in the first part of the century, there was more testimony on forest land and and uh, grassland management issues give, uh, presented by W. to Congress than all the other conservation groups combined. So the space we like to work in is kind of in the in, the, in the, the background of conservation. We don't publish a flashy magazine. We don't have a bunch of logos. What we do is basically this. We are um, very vigilant of the major issues facing conservation, and particularly the ones that no one seems to find a solution for. And our job is to find a solution and then pass it off to the groups, whether it be an NGO, whether it be a state or federal agency, who's most capable to carry that solution into the future, and then we move on to the next one. So a lot of the initiatives that may have our logo on it are, are fairly veiled by the logos of our partners because we believe that's how conservation actually gets done by sharing the space rather than taking credit for it. So you might I might encapsulate all that by saying WMI is, is kind of a think tank of conservation. Uh, most of our employees are ex-directors of state or federal fish and wildlife management agencies. This is kind of their failed retirement job. And... <laughs> they use their political influence and network to really push open the back doors of conservation.
1: Very cool. Very cool. I love it. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with WMI and what exactly it was. So that paints a, a really good picture. And and you're currently involved, uh, the big, bigger part, what we'll be talking about today with the CWD Alliance. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So one of those thorny issues that no one seems to have a solution for, or at least didn't uh, many years ago, is chronic wasting disease. So Um, back in the early 2000s and even before that, CWD was, well, let's just say it was kind of in a panic state. Um, uh, We were finding it. We had a few answers about it. There was a lot of speculation, a lot of fear. And so um, some conservation organizations, um, like the Mueller Foundation, Boone and Crockett Club, um, decided, you know what? We need to promote um, accurate, unbiased scientific information about chronic wasting disease and hold a standard to that so we can maybe stop some of the hype and the panic about this disease and turn the conversation from fear into action. So they formed this thing called the Chronic Wasting Disease Alliance. And then about 2006, they asked WMI if we would be willing to just manage it. So the partners are are the real heroes there. They're the ones that fund this and support this. Um, I, in my role at WMI, basically just keep the wheels moving forward, making sure that conversations like you and I are having today are done so in a in a way that is science-based in the tradition of North American wildlife management. And that regardless of the crazy theories or fear or uncertainty that exist out there about CWD, the public has somewhere to go to get verifiable, accurate information about it.
1: 100%. No, that's, uh, that's a really good explanation. I think that's you know part of my my purpose of this podcast is one i want to find out more information for myself that's that's unbiased and you know what we can do and and what we should be concerned about and just kind of the the big picture of, of chronic wasting disease because it it all comes back to the resource which is uh what's number one and and what's going to continue our way of life a hunting and heritage and and wildlife so it's yeah, all cool exactly. stuff um So like, just for people that, I mean, obviously probably most hunters outdoorsmen, people listening to this podcast have heard of chronic wasting disease, but just in kind of general layman's terms, can you just give us a rundown? What is CWD and, you know, essentially why, why should the average outdoorsman be concerned?
0: Yeah. Well, it's a good place to start. And we'll, uh, we'll start at a high level here. And then if you want to drill down into some of the science, you can. Um, I'll, I'll say it at, at, at a caveat, one of the challenges with this disease is it is fairly science heavy. It's a disease that isn't really intuitive based on most of our high school biology training. And so sometimes it, you have to scratch the surface a little bit deeper, but it, at least at a high level. What CWD is, is one of a family of diseases Called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. I promise I won't say that again. I'll just abbreviate. <laughs> Don't ask just me abbreviate to that, that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> say that five times real fast. Um, I, I won't. I'll just use the abbreviation TSE. Basically, what these diseases are—they're um, they, they're, or in that family. Um, let's start with kind of what they do. They are always fatal neurological diseases caused by a misfolded protein. So all three of those things that I just said can be terrifying and a little bit confusing, but essentially what we're dealing with is a disease whose disease agent is a non-living thing. It's a protein, but it's just a, a misfolded protein. And, and what when you that say prote-
1: misfolded, what is what does that exactly mean? It's like a mutation? Yeah. Is it? So so yeah, it took you
0: about one minute to dive into the hard science here, but we'll we'll, <laughs>
1: we'll we'll go down we'll we'll go down
0: there a little bit. So let's look at what a protein is. So the and the particular protein that we're dealing with, called a prion protein, is something that all mammals have. Um, it exists outside of the cells, so it, li- it exists in that area between cells. We're pretty sure it has something to do with cellular communication. It's about two hundred and fifty amino acids long. So a uh, reminder from your high school biology class: a, a protein. <laughs> is a string of amino acids that's folded together in a three-dimensional shape. That's pretty much it. So the way I like to think about it is that when you think about a prion protein, sort of look at your hand with all five fingers extended. Okay, that's kind of the the shape of the, the, the normal prion protein. Now, if you close your hand into a fist, it's still your hand and those fingers are there, but the shape of your hand is very different and therefore the function of your hand can also be different. Well, so it is with the misfolded version of this prion protein. When it misfolds, just like you closing your hand, it several things happen. Number one, the body can't break it down like it can the healthy form of the prion protein. So it persists. The other thing that it does, and by the way, it persists for a really long time, like many years in the environment, it's really—that that, that change in fold really makes it very difficult to destroy. And then the other funky thing that happens is that when one of those misfolded proteins interacts or bumps into a healthy, normal protein, it causes that healthy prion protein to misform as well. So mm. it caused that open hand to close. And so, what happens inside an animal that have one of these, let's call it infectious proteins in um, in them, from CWD, a susceptible animal, is that over time, those misfolded proteins replicate themselves in the body. Um, in mule deer, this process takes. Um, on average 15 months or so before there's so many that accumulate in the body and they have a tendency to accumulate in the central nervous system particularly the brain you start to see external signs of the disease that are caused by something that happens in the brain so I mentioned before that transmissible spongiform long name thing the spongiform refers to the fact that these prion proteins start to form lesions or holes Actual holes in the brain. So if you look at a slice of an infected brain of an animal that's had the disease for you know fifteen months to two years, it looks almost like a sponge. This brain material full of these little bitty holes. And as, as you can imagine, holes in your brain are not conducive to health, and eventually um, it'll kill you.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's a that's a really good explanation there. I've never heard anyone explain it in the analogy that you use with the hand and. How they yeah. interact with each other, um, so that that paints a really good picture for myself. Uh, do they know? Do you know where this disease originated from? Like, is this something that has been going on for thousands of years, or yeah. just unsure of how it all originated?
0: The million-dollar question: um, how <laughs> How did this start? And and here again, there's there's some um, fairly deep science and biology here that makes these diseases. If you're a disease person like myself that you, for whatever sick reason, you kind of geek out on this stuff, um, really interested in these. So there's a, a handful of these diseases, as I said before, and different versions of them are in different species. So you've heard of CWD in, of course deer, elk, and moose. Um, and then we've got scrapy, which is the CWD version in sheep. Then you've got, um, bovine encephalopathy encephalopathy, the, the BSE the mad cow disease that caused such a stink many years ago, then Crutzfeldt-Jakob's in humans. So we have all of these different forms of these prion diseases that are fairly species specific. And, and, and I'm getting to the, your, your, the answer to your question, which is where to start, but it's important to kind of know how this thing interacts in the real world. As it turns out, some of these diseases from some species can transfer to others. For inst- instance, we know that if a human consumes mad cow infected beef, um, they can get the human form, or that um, they'll the, the come down with Kritzfeld Jakob's disease, the, the 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 human form of the prion disease. But interestingly, if you put cattle in with infected mule deer that have CWD, the cattle don't get CWD. So there's huh. some weird species barriers between these things, and and we'll probably come back to this point when we'll, I know we'll eventually start talking about can humans get this. But how does it start is is a really interesting question. And there there's two theories out there when it comes to CWD. One is that it formed sporadically. So let me give you an example of like the kritzfeld jakobs form of prion diseases in humans. There's a couple different variants of it. So we, we've found, or scientists have found, that sometimes, or and maybe even frequently, if if Kritzfeld jakobs is found in a human, it spontaneously arose. So it just happened. So it's something that can happen in an individual. And a lot of those other prion diseases have a form like that where it just shows up in an individual, often in older age. Um, we're not exactly sure why, but we call that spontaneous uh prion disease this would be this example of a human it would be a spontaneous case of creutzfeldt-jakob's disease so there's a theory that well maybe a spontaneous version of this disease popped up in deer and elk and then for whatever reason that spontaneous form became infectious and therein lies the problem because the spontaneous forms are often not infectious from individual to individual and this, this is where CWD and scrapie are unique among all those other prion diseases. With CWD and scrapie, and, and just as a reminder, scrapie is the sheep variant, these infectious prions can be shed out of the body, land in the environment, and remain infectious for a susceptible individual. That is not the case with mad cow disease. With mad cow disease, you have to consume infected material before, if you are susceptible, before you will get it. It does not get shed in the environment. So when we think about the origin story here, it's uh, knowing that CWD and scrapie are the only ones that really do this external environmental contamination thing. The second theory is that given where we first found it, which was in the Rocky Mountain West, um, where we first identified it was uh, in the foothills of uh, Colorado. Actually, it's only about six miles from my house is where we first uh, identified it, which also, this area also happens to be right along the Colorado Sheep Trail. So the other theory is that um, after Scrapey was found in this region back, I think it was like in the 1940s, that perhaps um, scrapey being shed in the environment. If it was present in some of these herds somehow misformed and got into, or let's not say misformed, um, became susceptible to wild mule deer. And that's how it entered the system. Now I just spent probably five or six minutes with these kind of crazy theories. The, at the end of the day, Adam, we have no idea and we will have no idea. And at And probably the real take home message is its origin story actually has no meaning to us today because, however, it started, it's here now. And it is unfortunately um, infectious from animal to animal as well as animal to environment back to animal.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's the scary thing is not knowing what causes it. Um, Sure. And then, and then, and that it is infectious between animals. And, um, how how is that transmitted? I, I've heard you know deer eating off the same like bait pile. You know you hear in a lot sure. of states like not allowing baiting as as a means of of hunting uh, methods and certain things like that. But it's you know like how it, can it be saliva contact? Is it uh, they eat something on the ground where a prion has been infected or in uh, some sort of dirt? Like tell us how it's transmitted.
0: Yeah. So um, let let's start with let's, with a reminder of, of when we started this conversation of what it does in the body, you have these proteins that, um, are somehow introduced the misformed or or the misfolded versions of these prions. They get in the body and essentially they spread throughout the body, although they tend to concentrate in the central nervous system. But over the years, scientists have sampled, um, all tissues in the body and found the prions in muscle tissue, found them in saliva, found them in blood. So you can kind of do the math here. If the if the infectious prions can be found in the bloodstream, pretty much most of the tissues that in an animal that receive blood could be potentially infectious. So we know that that's the case. The, the question is really, what, what are the meaningful transmission routes? And, and so kind of here are the big ones. Um, saliva, So you can think nose-to-nose contact between animals. You can think shared drinking spots. And we have some data from things like that you just mentioned, Adam, where we have found that at mineral blocks, um, the the disease can remain infectious from the saliva, you know, from deer licking a a salt block or a mineral rock, and then another deer coming along and then um, licking that same spot. So it can be shed that way. Um, So a lot, and therefore, anytime an animal comes nose to nose with another one and might ingest one of these prions, that is a potential transmission route. Because it can also be shed through urine, feces. Uh, Urine is a little spongy. It's it's present in urine. We're still not sure how much of an actual infection route that is. The the amount of prions in urine is extremely small. So if it's a reasonable infectious route, eh, the, the jury's still out on that one. But we have found it in feces. We have found it in saliva, as I mentioned. And then a lot of other um, animal parts. So you can imagine a carcass that is on the landscape decomposing. A lot of studies on soil retention of these prions, whether they're shed through blood, saliva, feces, or decomposition, these prions exist in the soil for at least five years, potentially way more than that. We kind of stopped our studies at around five years because we kind of had the answer to our question that, okay, these things live a long time in in uh, natural conditions. We've even found that prions can be taken up into plants um, by plant roots. There's some ongoing studies right now learning about how significant that might be, particularly for agricultural crops. You you start to think about um, whitetails and you think about food plots um, in CWD areas. It really raises some questions of um, are we planting and things that might uptake prions? Should we consider that when we're harvesting? Should we consider that when we're making food plots? A lot of questions there, but the point is these prions being shed into the environment and remaining infectious just kind of opens up a pantheon of potential infectious routes that we have to think about and manage for. Now, that all that being said, which sounds absolutely terrifying, there's, there's one other thing we need to probably keep in perspective here. Well, not probably, we very much need to keep in perspective. What we, what we don't know is the minimum dose of prions. Does it take one that an animal ingests by any of those transmission routes, or does it take one billion? Mm, We're not yeah. sure yet, but we do know that there is some relationship between the amount of exposure and the susceptibility or the transmission rate. So light exposure, there's a much less likelihood that an, a susceptible animal gets infected as opposed to heavy exposure
1: got it got it but what but what you're saying though is like through one of these forms of of transfer whether it's urinating uh maybe feces or saliva so for example let's use the food plot analogy that you used you know those deer coming back there and eating off the same plants they're peeing in that same spot um you know that you said can potentially be transferred and be growing within the plant which then could be recycled and then eaten by another animal. Is that kind of how you look at the cycle of things?
0: Well, that's that's one potential cycle. And I should, again, say we don't really understand how infectious plant material that may have taken up proteins really is. We know that that it occurs, but we don't know how. To what degree? Let's say, yeah. Well, we we don't know how viable it is as a transmission method. What we do know is the animal to animal contact thing, um, animals drinking out of the same trough, um, licking the same uh, mineral site, nose to nose touching. We do know that those things are much more likely to transmit the disease, and those are very likely the most um, common, effective ways. Yeah, common ways the disease is transmitted from animal to
1: animal. Okay got it. And and you mentioned a little bit earlier symptoms, you know, it can take up to 15 months uh, to show signs of of this disease. Like I had a buddy that killed a deer in Wisconsin. He said, mm-hmm. you know, look completely healthy, normal. He had it checked, you know, cuz Wisconsin is also a Smart. kind of a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, major hub. And um you know, found out they had chronic wasting disease and, and disposed of everything and obviously didn't yeah. eat any of the meat, but like that's also a scary thing, not being able to tell, you know, it's not, not always that the deer is walking around like a, you know, a zombie almost. (laughs) You never know. I mean, you just certainly can't tell.
0: Yeah. The zombie thing. That was, that was quite a fun, uh, thing to deal with last year. Um, (laughs) and, and we may get to that again, but, um, what are you referring to with a zombie?
1: Like, was there some sort of,
0: so, uh, there's there's so much here, Adam. I won't I won't dig into it. So, in the last year, this uh, the, this this uh, media title, the the zombie deer apocalypse, was one story. It was referred to as zombie deer. And and man, I don't know. We we seem to be in this just zombie infatuation right now. I I, I actually. Did a an interview with somebody from Colorado Public Radio who was one of the ones that put forward that zombie thing, and we actually did a fun a fun little uh, recorded session where I went through all the ways CWD is not like a, a zombie <laughs> disease or the the infected deer not like zombies, and uh, I don't know if it ever aired, but it was kind of a fun um, uh, fun exercise. The point is, there's nothing about this disease that is actually like what we culturally think of as zombies, but in all fairness, the thing that you're talking about that the, an animal may be infected and looks perfectly normal. That is yeah, one of the main frustrating points and, and concerning points about this disease is that the vast majority, and I mean the vast majority of animals that are harvested by hunters that end up having chronic wasting disease showed zero indication that they were unhealthy in any way. So the, um, thinking back to how these prions collect in the animal, you can kind of understand and see why that's the case. And you can see why this is so heartbreaking for hunters because you, you know, let's say you, you come to Colorado, it's your dream hunt. You harvest that 180 mule deer. Um, it's the greatest moment you've had in your life. Everything looks great. Body condition looks great. You t- you take the sample in and then it's positive and you go, wait a minute. Is, is the division of wildlife just met or Colorado parks and wildlife. Are they just messing with me? There's no way this thing can be positive. And so it's, it, 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 it really sets up this, I don't know, this, this intuitive, um, uh, battle, I think in the mind of a hunter or, or anybody of who should I really trust? Because this animal look totally fine. And you're telling me it has this always fatal neurological disease yeah. that doesn't make any sense. And, but that is really one of our main challenges in getting compliance, um, from other hunters and from anybody else on other regulations, whether it's stop baiting and feeding them, um, deal with your carcasses in, in, in a better way trying to convince folks that that perfectly healthy looking animal has this degenerative um, neurological condition. It's a real challenge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's, and that's where I'm at. It's like, okay, well, it's tough to tell and you can't physically see a lot of these effects. So it's, it's really difficult to know how big of an issue it is. Obviously it's a big issue because it's always fatal and and it's it's just not good, but it's it's tough to gauge it, you know? Um and, and with that, it seems like deer, uh like mule deer and whitetail deer get all the press, but elk and moose can also get C W D, correct?
0: Uh, they do. Yeah. There's, there's a, a host of susceptible species. Um, you know, what we collectively call the cervid family. So pretty much all deer species, as well as, you know, the range of first caribou, um, reindeer. Um, we even found them in, in, in it, well, haven't found it, but experimentally, you know, we've shown that even mutant jack deer and fallow deer can get it. So all these species, species are susceptible Um, to the disease. Interestingly, though, it seems to affect them in different ways. Um, Like here in Colorado, for example, although we have found it in mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk, and moose here in the state, the prevalence rates between those species are very, very different. And, and prevalence, just for clarification, this is the number of animals in a given population that we're looking at that have the disease. So if we're looking at a herd of a hundred animals and 10 of them have CWD, well, that's, that herd has 10% prevalence. So, you know, in, in, in Colorado, um, well, let me let, not just say in Colorado, it's just what we've learned generally is that moose tend to have it in much, much lower concentrations, even after we found it and we've monitored I, As a matter of fact, I think here in Colorado, we haven't found a positive moose in the last three years, even oh, wow. though we've been looking for it. Um, elk, uh, you know, prevalence rates in the state, uh, don't quote me on this, but I, I don't think we have many herds, if any at all, that are over 5% prevalence, even in areas where in mule deer populations, the prevalence in adult males may be as high as 15 to 20%. So another really frustrating part about this disease, at least from a wildlife manager's perspective, is that you can't treat it all the same. It's very species-specific, and it's even gender-specific. Males tend to have the disease at twice the rate of females. Um... For you know, and, and we're pretty sure that's because of how the disease is transmitted. Um, bucks sure cover a whole lot more ground during the fall of the year than does do. Got it. And um and so we've we've tracked it over time that yeah a buck is twice as likely, particularly a mature buck, twice as likely to have the disease as female. So you think about this from a management perspective. Um you know how do you manage it, uh, across all those species and even across um, demographics within a particular herd.
1: So what what is a state like Colorado doing? to manage CWD. Uh, Like my home state of Michigan, uh, there's been Mm. cases that come up and and they've basically open season, shoot as many deer as you can, eradicate the herds. Is that something that Colorado is looking at as as a potential (laughs) means?
0: Yeah, well, no, we're, we're not going to be doing a Shermanist march from the south here. Um, <laughs> uh, although, you know, it's interesting. If, if you look at, I, I don't know how many um, uh, folks in your audience are familiar with what happened in Norway in the past few years when they discovered CWD in the, in the reindeer herd. But honestly, they looked at what we've done here in the States and they said, you know what, we don't think you can manage this disease well and we have one shot. So they went with a uh, herd eradication. There, there was basically three large herds of reindeer and the one, uh, you know, spatially over the, 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 a large area of the country. And it's kind of the middle herd is the one that had CWD and they went for almost complete removal of that herd with the hope that, um, by the time the other two herds kind of naturally moved into that habitat, the disease would be dispersed enough uh, on the landscape that wouldn't be an issue. And, and so I'll say kind of right at the outset, I don't think that's an unreasonable approach to CWD when you add up all the variables we've talked about, it's always fatal. The disease agent is a non-living protein that resists temperatures of over a thousand degrees that, um, is incredibly hard to kill chemically that persists in the soil can be uptaken in plants. When you start adding all that stuff together, it's not unreasonable to, to think, listen, if we find it, we need to just wipe the ground with it because there's nothing, you know, because of the consequences later on. Yeah. Now, Politically, obviously, that's a non-starter. And, and and I would say if we change our, our perspective from, let's say, eradication to management, I think there's a lot more reasonable approaches. And this is where uh, Colorado, in my estimation, a little bit biased because I live in Hunt here, um, but I think is kind of leading the edge in um, uh, appropriate and science-based management of CWD so that we can kind of coexist with the disease over time, and it won't negatively impact our populations. So what does that look like? Well, if you're not going to do the complete herd wipeout, um, we can take advantage of some of these things we've learned about the disease. So the fact that it's twice as, as prevalent in males as females, the fact that we know the disease transmits from animal to animal, um, we can do some, some prudent things like um, reducing high density areas. So we've got a lot of deer packed into a small amount of habitat. Let's loosen the, or let's remove some animals. So the density isn't so high and animals aren't interacting as much with each other and they're not contaminating, you know, hot spots, good spots in the habitat. We can do some prudent things like not putting out mineral blocks or artificially congregating them. We can, um, Work on our buck to doe ratios. So, for instance, in Colorado, a lot of people don't know, but this really is a successful state for yielder management. If you look at the herd management plans across the state, most of our herds have higher buck to doe ratios than the management plans call for. So, I mean, that's that's great news. Yeah. So, well, so so this is what how I like to think about it. It's like, okay, look, we're already in a really good position. So. We can just if we just reduce our buck to doe ratios back to what we prescribed as management, we're kind of killing two birds with one stone. We're keeping our herds healthy and we're also impacting CWD by targeting the highest probability herd demographic. That is going to be males and particularly um, older age class males. So these are some of the approaches that Colorado Parks and Wildlife is taking. I would really encourage. all the listeners on this podcast to go and look at Colorado Parks and Wildlife CWD management plan. It just came out. Um, I had the honor of serving on the uh, kind of an advisory board with other sportsmen and women and other um, wildlife enthusiasts here in the state. I think it's probably the most progressive and science-based state CWD management plan out there. And I just like folks to know that if you look at the recommendations for CWD management in that plan, nowhere in there does it say we're going to reduce a herd by 50%. Nowhere in there is that we're going to remove all the older age class mule deer. Basically, all the recommendations in there are management tweaks like the things we've been talking about, like buck to doe ratios, um, getting herd densities down to Um, uh, levels prescribed in the management plans that are derived by, um, you know, habitat requirements and so forth. The trick with this is, Adam, if we as hunters can get on board with what CPW is doing and with what science tells us, um, we can actually make a really big impact on CWD in the state. And I'd even go so far as to say hunters are the primary um, weapon we have against this disease because... The Colorado Parks and Wildlife can release more tags based on herd demographics and CWD potential prevalence or or transmission rates, and use us kind of surgically rather than um, uh, atomically.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, one size fits all sort of. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That makes sense. It's really interesting, and I had a. Cliff Gray with Flat Tops Wilderness Guides, I've had him on the episode or a podcast a few times, but I recently had him on for an episode. And we talked a lot about um, the changes in season dates for 2020 yeah. through 2025 or, you know, yeah. the next five years. And, you know, with, with a lot of the rifle seasons, you know, everything's pushed back a week. Like, for example, you know, second season is now... You know, falling in more towards the beginning of November, I believe. So, right. Right. with that, you're going to get a higher activity of, of, of rutting activity, and and yep. and and with that, he stated that the the quotas have essentially remained the same, even though you know you're moving into more right. high probability of of rut activity, and and therefore harvest um, would probably increase. So, but I didn't even put two and two together. Maybe do you think that maybe some of those season date. Um, Changes are trying to correlate with some of this management of CWD.
0: Well, uh, that, that, what you just mentioned there, in terms of moving seasons a little bit later so that mature buck harvest is a little bit higher, is exactly one of the things that is mentioned in that CWD response plan. Okay. Um, well, you know, specifically whether CPW did that. Um, for CWD in mind that, that I don't know, maybe because I know that is one of the things that we talked about. What I do know is that, um, CPW is right now in the process of rewriting a lot of its 10 year management plans for, um, a lot of the game management units. And in that process, they are looking at several of those options. So yeah, things that could get the buck to do ratio down a little bit and, and increase, um, mature buck harvest because that's the best way to target, you know, some of that prevalence. So yeah, those, those are the type of things that we can do. And we and and research has shown that actually do have an impact. And I wanna emphasize that. And there's 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 two good examples we have here in Colorado um, about management success. Before I say that, let me mention one of the biggest questions I get from hunters, from wildlife viewers, and from the media is, well, does anything actually work? And to be honest, (laughs) we don't have a lot of successes. Honestly, we have a couple decades of a lot of misfires in CWD management. And I think I can sum up the reason for those misfires simply by saying we as a culture have not been patient enough. Um, To do these management actions long-term enough or wide enough in scope to actually impact the disease. This is a disease you measure in decades, not years. If you want to make a difference in CWD, you need to commit. So... Um, fortunately in Colorado, because we've been messing around with this long enough, we do have some successes. If you look at, um, some of the deer herds, uh, north of Fort Collins, um, on the, in the wintering range, north of the Poudre Canyon, or I should say the north side of the Poudre Canyon. Um, in that area, we have one of the fastest growing deer herds. And 10 years ago, that herd had prevalence of, I think it was over 10%. And we, uh, CPW tried increasing, uh, well, they did two things. They increased doe and deer harvest a lot. Those were the good old days when you could buy, I think, two additional deer tags over the counter um, for does in the area. And they did some actual culling and they reduced that herd by quite a bit. When that area was recently sampled this last year, um, prevalence was about in half of what it was. But that's wow. ten years later. Yeah, and so you know, there's a lot of things in there, and I don't want to be so pretentious to say this that that's uh, what we did in terms of harvest management was what caused the decline. But it had to be a significant factor. There were some other things in there, like there was a couple fires in the area that may have increased deer productivity and some other stuff. But in 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 large part. We know that it can work, and and there's going to be a paper published here coming up fairly soon from research here in Colorado where we can actually start to look at things like increased deer harvest in one of the three combined rifle seasons with CWD prevalence two years later, and we can see that prevalence rate move. So I think there's a message of hope here for, for hunters is that— Things like, yeah, just moving a season date back a week so we increase a little bit more mature buck deer harvest, um, releasing a few more tags so we reduce high-density areas for transmission. These are the kind of things that we need to do here in Colorado. It's just that we need to do them over wide areas of the state, and we, as hunters in the public, need to commit to doing it for five, six, seven years to really make an impact on the disease.
1: Is is one of the things that they're proposing is more— uh, required testing of of harvest because because you know right now it's not mandatory for people to get their deer or elk tested for chronic wasting disease. Is there some sort of process or plan in place to maybe uh, open that up to more places to make it easier for us to test to lower the cost associated with doing it? Tell us about oh. that.
0: Oh, oh, there's yeah, there's there's several things in there. Um, so the the first thing we should note is that. Um, for the last, this is the, the, well, for the last two years, including this last season, there has been mandatory testing of, of, um, a certain areas in Colorado it hasn't been a statewide. So again, I'll refer back to that CWD management plan. If you look at that plan, here's, here's what CPW is planning to do. They will require mandatory testing of a certain proportion of the state, um, every year for the next several years. So we're going to do a rotation So every five years, we will have complete CWD testing data, at least from hunters, statewide. Um, Now, that follows about 10 years where we didn't require mandatory testing. And it was just volunteer testing, and we learned something about <laughs> we learned something about <laughs> incentives. If, you, if folks have to do it voluntarily, you get lousy data. And as yep. it turned out, the data was not enough for us to actually make management recommendations on. So that's why CPW reinstated mandatory testing, but they realized it's a burden fiscally for them and for. Hunters. So, we're not going to require everybody um, that, you know, everybody who wants a certain GMU or game management unit, we're not going to require, or they're not going to require, that they sample their deer every year, but once every five years, yes. And that's enough for us to get a, a good view of where things are in the state. So, that is in the works. And I can tell you, if you look at the data from the last two years, we are getting a lot of great information that we didn't know before. We're getting much. Uh, more reliable numbers about where prevalence is so that we can, again, more surgically address the issue rather than just saying, Eastern half of Colorado, y'all are going to do this. Western half of Colorado, y'all are going to do this. So I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. Now the second thing that you asked, which is kind of the burden of testing, price, time, commitment, I'm, I will be the last person to say that this process is super convenient. Um, and there's, there's a couple reasons for that. So when you are asked to test your deer, here's, here's the challenge of a non-living disease agent. So let's remember again, we're dealing with a non-living protein, just a folded up glob of 250 amino acids. That is really hard to find. Proteins are teeny. So we can't just do a, a quick test like people are used to to check for the flu or even strep throat for Pete's sake. Yeah, um, We can't just culture this real quick. So there are um, the, the, w- there are a handful of ways to test this. And in the past decade, there have been some what we call rapid tests. Um, things uh, the, t- the, the thing that we use most frequently is called an ELISA. It's an acronym for a thing called enzyme-linked <laughs> immunosorbent assay. Basically what it is... It's, um, it's a process that takes a day or two to discover the presence of these misfolded proteins. Um, so here's why it takes a while. Number one, oh, the thing I mentioned, it's a tricky test, and it's not as easy as testing for bacteria or viruses. So it means it's going to be a little bit more expensive. But honestly, these ELISA's are not that expensive. We're talking about 20 bucks. I guess that's a relative term, but if you look at a copay to, you know, check to see if you have the flu it might seem pretty cheap yeah about 20 bucks. but here the so that's that's one challenge the second challenge is capacity we're talking tens of thousands of animals all within the span of a week and a half that some laboratory has to test and before that laboratory can test it a bunch of very brave and very uh tough cpw staff and volunteers have to collect the samples and then transport them to the lab and each test again takes 24 hours or more to do now if you had a bunch of labs that were doing that um you know it it could be faster but remember this is a once you know uh, almost a once a year thing there's a couple months a year where the, we need all this capacity and then for the rest of the year we don't need any capacity yeah so right now, uh, we, you know, we're actually kind of lucky in here in, here in Colorado, a lot of the CWD samples from around the country go to the CSU Veterinarian Diagnostic Laboratory here in Fort Collins. A lot of states use our laboratory, but our stuff goes there as well. And there just aren't many um, facilities that have the capacity that can hold the capacity all year long for the kind of load that we put on the system, you know, uh, during the fall of the year. So that's the why it's, it's not an easy answer. I wish I could say, Hey, all we need is a couple million bucks and we'll, we'll fix it. It actually isn't that easy just because of the nature of this. So unfortunately, here's what hunters are are left with. That is, you got to submit your test. You got to butcher your animal and then you got to not eat it until you see the results of your test. And if it's positive, you know, you've got all this butchered meat that you don't want to consume. So it's, it's, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not a rosy proposition.
1: Yeah, that's the tough thing. I mean, I I, I went through the process last year. Um, I was part of the mandatory testing if I was to harvest a deer, which I did. Uh, took it in. They cut out the lymph nodes and um, you know sent them in for testing. That didn't take very long at the office, but um, I think it took almost two weeks, something like that, maybe a week and a half to, to get my results back. And yeah, by that time I already had everything processed back up. Thankfully mine didn't have CWD. So, uh, I continued (laughs) eating the meat, but like, I guess in the future I, I should, you shouldn't even eat the meat in, in my opinion, I guess, um, until you have that test result back. I mean, that's Probably makes the most sense, right?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and and that's what we've recommended from the beginning. Uh, CDC recommends it. We do as well. Um, don't consume the meat if it's positive. Just straight up. Um, I know it's 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 a it's a rough thing to swallow. But let's just set expectations right now. That's that is now just. One of the things we as hunters deal with, at least here in this state, and and more and you know hunters in 24 other states where it's been found in wild servants have to deal with it as well. It's it's just a thing we do to be stewards of conservation. Now, um, you know, it, it it brings up the question that I know a lot of folks are probably thinking, and and that they that they've been faced with when they submit their sample is that you know what. I'm just going to eat it anyhow. It's probably going to be okay. Yeah. And you know, that kind of, if that's the question of, well, will people actually get it? And again, I so wish I could just give you a yes or no, but I can't until we take a handful of humans and inject their brains with infected brain homogenate of deer, and then watch them for five years. We're not going to know yeah. if humans are absolutely susceptible to this disease. So here's what we do know is that a species barrier does exist between humans and cwd how robust that barrier is that's what we're trying to figure out so although we haven't directly tested it like i said you know injected five humans with brain infected brain homogenate and sees what happens although we haven't done that we have done a handful of other things to give us an idea for example um, we, we've looked at areas like the front range of Colorado where CWD has been around since the sixties and we have a lot of local hunters eating local deer. We've looked at medical records to see, do we see a spike in creutzfeldt jakobs disease or things that are diagnosed as prion diseases? And as it turns out over the past 40 years... We've actually seen a slight decrease. So we've looked at data, these kinds of data, in various places across the U.S. And we found, okay, if it does transmit to humans, it doesn't look like it happened very frequently if it does at all. That being said, prion diseases, if you, if you, you all out there listening haven't figured it out yet, are tricky, unpredictable things. So that's why we recommend don't consume the meat because we don't know 100% how uh, w- what that the robustness of that species barrier is
1: yeah that's yeah i mean it's a it's a good recommendation i just you know I, I myself just think about over the years you know growing up in michigan the the neighboring county to where i grew up uh was one that they've you know, uh, found CWD in and have acted, enacted the eradicated stuff. I just can't help but wonder, you know, have I eaten an animal with CWD uh, over the past 15 years of, of my hunting career, I guess, you know, you wonder what, what nature we're at in that, in that regard. And, um, with that, like, is there any sort of percentage wise, like, as far as like infected mule deer in Colorado, like, I know there are certain maps available on CPW's website to show which units have been infected or which cases have been found where, but is there like a general, you know, this percentage of deer are infected with CWD in Colorado?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And, you know, and and before we move to that one, one thing I will say is uh, that, that uncertainty that you have of have I eaten one and then the uncertainty every year of um, what should I do if I find it's positive? Um, yeah, that's something a lot of us deal with. One thing I would, I want to emphasize to folks though, is remember, because this isn't a virus or a bacteria, you can't get CWD. Nothing can just by handling it. So this isn't something that, Mm. you know, if, should I be worried to even breathe around my deer or field dress it? Uh, no, you can be fine. I, I, we recommend wear latex gloves. Most of us do anyhow, because, um, well, uh, we've just gotten a, a sissy in in this generation and we don't like blood on our hands. So most of the people <laughs> I hunt with wear, wear latex gloves. So I'd recommend you wear latex gloves, you handle the meat um, the way you normally do and don't worry about it. This really is a concern of consumption. So don't be afraid to hunt. We need you out there doing it.
1: Yeah. Now, and, and with that too, before, before we get onto what I just asked, like if, if one, if you do find your deer has tested positive CWD, what's the proper way to dispose of the meat, of the bones, everything. Yeah.
0: And that's a, uh, that's a good question. Um, I should have looked this up before this podcast. Um, There's probably recommendations um, that the Colorado parks and wildlife um, has on their website. Uh, The, the, Prior to this point, the standard uh, operating procedure was you you take it to a landfill. But uh, we should note that there are some landfills who don't allow that um, at this point. And so how you deal with that is um, somewhat very is very local, sometimes county level. So. What I'd encourage hunters to do is is to inquire at their county landfills or even with their local um, district wildlife manager, you know, what we call game wardens here in Colorado of what should I do with my meat if, if it is turned out to be positive, they'll have the best recommendations. Unfortunately, there just isn't a statewide answer because, uh, again, a lot of this stuff is county level in terms of landfill or other uses. What um, some things you can do to mitigate the potential risk for passing it on is that, um, debone it in the field. If you're in a CWD, uh, positive unit, leave it in the field because the more we can leave there and not transport to new areas, the better. The last thing we want to do as hunters is sort of, you know, dump infectious material at a new location where we don't have CWD. So let's think about that a little bit. So as much as you can leave all bone lymph node parts, um, in the field, and then, yeah. Uh, do your due diligence. Ask around a little bit about what you should do with your carcass based on where you live. Also be cognizant if you're from out of state, um, the regulations of transporting the parts of, a, of infected service acro- uh, serve it across state lines. There again, it's a little bit of a, a, my- or a, a maze for hunters to get through, but you just need to be aware of, of, uh, uh, of what the, the local and statewide regulations there are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And if somebody does want to, like when I got the notification or the letter in the mail saying, if I do harvest, it's a mandatory test, but let's say you don't receive that, or you're not part of the mandatory testing group, um, is, is the process still the same? Like you're supposed to bring out the head, you know? So like, even if you shoot a doe or a small buck, you're not going to mount it or whatever, you want to bring out the entire head kind of down below the neck um, because the, the the best way to test is to remove the lymph nodes. Is that correct, or is there different uh, parts of the animal that that can be taken or removed to then be tested?
0: Yeah, the 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 two, the two most common things to test are what we call the the retropharyngeal lymph nodes or the tonsils, and that's those are kind of um, up underneath where the jaw uh, meets the skull or the brainstem and um, the. When, when you take it into a CPW sampling site, they make the determination of which is more um, appropriate to get. So what I like to tell folks is, yeah, just bring out the whole head. You can go ahead and um, cut the neck off one vertebrae below where the spinal column ends and enters the skull. Um, so pack out that one extra vertebrae as opposed to cutting right into the base of the skull. And if you do that, that will... And you and By the way, you can also skin it out if you want to reduce a little bit of weight. Um, if you do that that'll maximize the quality of the sample and minimize the amount of stuff you have to carry out.
1: Got it. Got it.
0: Yeah. So, um, the, you know, so the back, back to, so what are your odds of actually shooting one that's positive based on where you are in Colorado? And I, I think there's some good news here. No, I, I know there's some good news is that <laughs> sort of statewide, we're not talking about really, really high prevalence rates. So if we were to sort of flatten all deer herds across Colorado, um, to look at, uh, prevalence, we're still, you know, prevalence statewide is well under 5%, probably under 2%. However, that's, and it, let's say we're talking mule deer here. Um, however, that is probably not a, a really useful way to look at this. S- for some game management units, prevalence in mature bucks, at least according to data from this last year, is as high as 30%. So if you're in that area, well, you, you, that 30% is a whole lot more useful to you than sort of a statewide number. So what I encourage hunters to do is look at the really good resources CPW has online on their CP, on, on the CPW CWD website. Man, a lot of acronyms in this <laughs> podcast. Um, look at their CWD website, and they post... Um, a lot of data about how many samples were found, what the prevalence rates were per game management unit. So you can have a good idea of what you're stepping into and what you can expect. Um, that, coupled with kind of the the rough estimate I gave before that bucks are about twice as likely as does, lets you know that in an area that has 30% buck prevalence, yeah, doe prevalence is somewhere between, you know, 12 and 16% likely.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, that like you said, it certainly helps to know more about your specific area because it, it can vary widely, you know, across units. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah. and um, yeah. you know, to that effect, I've, I've I've talked with a lot of people on this, not not a lot, but you know, like there's also the theory that because we are now testing more and and gathering more information around this disease, that of course we're going to find more, which which makes sense. I can I can understand yeah. that. Um. How much do you think is like okay? We're testing more, so we're going to find more. Versus like, is it spreading or growing? Is there any sort of like indication? Yeah, it is growing rapidly, or is it just mm-hmm. you know we're at the stage of all this data collection and trying to find re- gauge really where we're at as far as numbers? Um, mm-hmm. Like, do you have any opinion on on either side of the fence there?
0: Yeah, well, you ask a really good question, Adam. Um, and And the answer to your question or, or to both sides of your question is is yes. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, but sort sort of briefly, here's here's what the deal is. Um, if you were to look at a national map, at least or, or even a North American map, starting in about two thousand, 2000, between 2000 and 2004, which is really when CWD was on the map. And we as a nation started looking for it. If you looked at the number of states or areas every two years from that point on where we found CWD, it sure as heck looks like the disease is spreading rapidly. And that would be a wrong conclusion. During that time, Even, you know, within the country, but also within states like Colorado, states like Wisconsin, some of these other flag um, or hallmark states where the the disease has been longest. During that time, we were finding more because we had more resources to sample. During those early days, there was even federal funding available that went to states to look for chronic waste disease. So we got more sophisticated about our methods. We developed better tests to look for it. We got better at at sampling tissues. And so the better we got at it, the more resources and capacity we had, the more we started to see it nationally. So it would be a wrong assumption to think that the last decade and a half has seen this explosion in CWD. That wouldn't be true. It was there. Um, We just weren't aware of it how much it was there will always remain a bit of an interesting question. Now, about five years ago, maybe even a little bit earlier, state fish and wildlife agencies, well, let's say it's earlier, maybe 10 years ago, several state fish and wildlife agencies across the country got really systematic in how they were sampling. So they, they sampled the same number of animals from the same areas year after year after year. When we started doing that, we started to get a much more accurate picture of what the spread or growth or increase of CWD actually was. Prior to that, we weren't sampling consistently, so you can't really say what the, what the increase was. We could simply say where we found it. And let's look at Colorado, for example. It's, this, this is a, a really good state. So we, we, we first found it in the wild. Actually, it was in an elk, even though we found it first in mule deer in captivity in 1967. We didn't know what we had. We 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 figured out that it was a prion disease in 1978, but then in 1981, I believe, um, we found it first wild in an elk. So we can at least say, you know, so so it was it was in the wild, um, probably in the 60s and 70s, maybe a little bit before, who knows? But we really started sampling for it consistently um, in the 2000s, and one of the reasons why we stopped mandatory testing, um, prior to two years ago was because statewide prevalence was under 2% wherever we were looking. It was pretty low. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a couple areas I said, mentioned before some crazy spots like Estes Park where, you know, you've got deer hanging out in McDonald's parking lots and and highly concentrated in people's flower gardens. We saw, you know, some higher prevalence spikes, but statewide it was really low. We didn't think we need to worry about it. Well. Um, about five years ago, there were some localized game management units sampling and we started to see some higher numbers and we thought – I'm saying we like we're CPW. Well, CPW, biologists thought maybe something else was going on. So that's what really triggered the mandatory testing two years ago. And as we did that and we sampled some of these areas that we had sampled 15 years prior to that, we found that prevalence went from 2 you know, to 5% to 16 to 30%. Oh wow! So the answer to your question is that, yeah, if you leave the disease alone, unmanaged, it will absolutely creep up on you. Now, here's where I'll give a little bit of what I think is really concerning data. There's one state, Wyoming, that did not do active management after they found the disease. And even though they took some heat for it from a this sounds terrible to say, but from a pure scientific standpoint, I'm kind of glad they didn't because we learned what happens mm, with yeah. prevalence when you don't mess with it, when you don't do any targeted culling, when you don't mess with with demographics, when you don't increase license um, numbers. In, in some of those herds where it was first found many years ago, um, they're seeing 40 to 50% prevalence in wild herds. Wow. And it's, in, it's just been increasing every year. We don't know where the top end point is, Adam. And in captive servant herds, we found it as high as 80%. What most biologists believe, if, if you leave it alone long enough, it may get up to 100%. Now, someone may be thinking, well, wait a minute. This is a 100% fatal disease. How can it get there? This is another crazy aspect of the disease. If the disease can take up to two years to kill an animal, that means a doe can reproduce before she succumbs to the disease. Mm, yeah. Now, if you have really good habitat, like some of the areas we have up in the Northeast part of the state, or even the Northwest part of the state, and, um, population numbers are high, that effect can be dampened for decades. You won't get necessarily a, you know, a huge decrease. You'll start to get a very younger herd. You'll start to see, you know, age classes of, of males four and above just start to start disappear, but the animals won't the, the herd itself won't just disappear at some prevalence rate. So that should be of real concern to us, that if we don't mess with this thing, if we leave it alone, it could go that high. And, and honestly, I don't think we've seen the top end of what it can do in wild populations. So long way to answer your question, but um, kind of yes to both things. Um, you, you've got to get consistent measuring point, which is why I'm really glad CPW is doing this c- cyclical measuring of everywhere in Colorado. And if we don't do some management, This thing can get away from us pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. I I had no idea of the, you know, status of what Wyoming was doing or, or therefore not doing around CWD and that there is a correlation between higher percentage of infected deer and elk, um, in that state where they really haven't done a lot of management. Have, have they begun to really, you know, say, Hey, we need to do something about this now, or are they still kind of like, uh, you know, let it, let it ride.
0: No, to their credit, um, you they they have seen these numbers as well. And and Wyoming is a state that is as proud of their um uh, public use resources as any other state. And, um, they're now in the process of looking at how they can start, um, working on these things. And, and, and frankly, they've, they've been talking, Colorado and Wyoming is, have always been sister states in, in management because we have a lot of the same issues. Um, UW University of Wyoming, Colorado State University have a long history of collaboration. And so, um, all of those scientists are talking right now on on how to make a management plan moving forward. Uh, again, it's it's unfortunate that they have to deal with that now, and Wyoming's hunters have to deal with that. But in many ways, I'm kind of glad because it, it it allows the rest of us, scientists and hunters alike, to realize, okay, we have to take this serious. Yeah. Um, this isn't just a hoax. We have 20 years of data on this, and this is if we don't do this, we're going to lose something. So yeah. you know, get at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And that, to me, what I'm gathering is like, you know, we're at the stand, we're at the point now that we, we just need strictly more data behind, behind this. And that's only going to help, you know, showcase long-term what, what really is going on here. So, I mean, it just, it just seems to me that we, we as hunters and outdoorsmen really, really need to step up and, and say that, Hey, every deer or elk I'm, I shoot. It it needs to be tested because mm-hmm. we frankly we need the data because like I said if we do if, if we get to a point where it's too late and it's already gotten to a, a high enough population of, of infection percentage wise I mean it's kind of like a compounding snowball uh, or at least it could be right
0: yeah well it is you, you you hit the nail on the head and I would even reemphasize it not not only do we need that data point to understand prevalence in the herd, because that's the only way we can get it. You know, again, folks, we can't send a drone over them and just observe them and say, oh, this one's sick, this one's not sick. They don't exhibit those signs. We need the data from hunter-killed animals to understand what's happening in our herds. But secondarily, once we have those data, we have to manage it. How do you manage it? through hunters. So hunters are really the beginning and the end of this story. Their support and their activity is the only way we get around this disease. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I think about the heritage of of stewardship that hunters have had and sort of the identity that I put in that, that heritage of stewardship, CWD is to me a, a rallying cry. It's that we have this new threat to the health of our herds, our public resources, and I am in the position as a hunter of being the one that produces the right information and then the implementer of the right action based on that information. So to me, even though it is, it's kind of a bummer if I lose an animal that I, you know, that I can't, uh, one of the animals I shoot each year is positive and I can't fill my freezer with it. I can rest assured in knowing I have done, I have, you know, struck a good blow against CWD and managing the herd for sustainability in the future. So I hope we, within ourselves, within our own community, the the hunting community, we can relay that message to each other and stop with the fear, stop with the, the zombie analogies and realize we are the answer to this thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, this is kind of an off the wall question, but is there any way to test deer or elk when they're still alive? Like if you go to Collar huh collar an animal or something, or you tranquilize them, is there a way to pull a sample that way? I, I know that's, like, a really expensive way to do it, but, like, mm-hmm. are any agencies doing that practice? Because they do collaring in, in studies that way, right? Um, very they small do. population, I'm sure. But, like, is there any way to pull samples from living deer without killing them? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. there
0: sure is. Um, and and we, we test the tissue that we gather the same way that we test tissue from um, a dead animal. It's just the 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 art is what tissue to gather. So when an animal is alive, there's really two places you can gather tissue. One is from the tonsil, um, rather than that l- retropharyngeal lymph node. And I think I misspoke before. I said the retro retropharyngeal lymph node was the tonsil, and they're they're not. Those are two different things. But we can get um, we can we can clip the tonsil while the animal is alive. I, I've actually seen it done, and and my wife, who is also a wildlife biologist. She got to do the cool stuff. I was stuck in D.C. doing policy, <laughs> and she was out wrang- wrangling deer. But, oh, man, that'd be um, fun. After deer is darted, basically what a scientist does is they got a special tool that forces the mouth open, and they've got these really long forceps that, that have a little kind of like a melon baller-shaped cup at the end that's sharp, and they reach in there at the tonsil, and they take a little a sample. They clip off a little sample of the tissue, and then they give the deer some antibiotics so they don't get infection, and then deer wakes up, and they go off. And then we can test that tissue— we can also do the same for the what's called the rectal mucosa. You can kind of guess where I'm going with this, <laughs> but there's a lymph node right inside the rectum that we can sample. Um, it's actually a little bit more reliable in elk than it, is in, than it is in deer. One thing I will say about both of these live animal sample sites, however, is that um, they are less reliable by a pretty significant margin than testing full lymph nodes or brain stems from a dead animal. So that's kind of the rub with this thing we call anti-mortem testing. It's a scientific way of saying live testing. We don't really have great methods of doing it that are very reliable. And as you can imagine, the name of the game with CWD is reliability. So that's why there's an emphasis on hunter or, you know, hunter gathered samples or samples from cold animals they're just simply way more reliable because we can get more quality tissue that helps us better detect if the prions are present or not.
1: Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And that's,
0: you know, another point on that, that I hear a lot is hunters say, well, why can't I have a little test in my pocket that when I shoot an animal in the field, I put a drop of blood and like I see on TV, it, turns red or pink or blue and tells me you know if I'm pregnant or not no it tells me if if, if, if it's positive or not and the the, the reality is simply this um, the testing that we have a lot of people don't necessarily know this the testing that we have will never give you that Eliza test I was t- talking about will never give you a false negative okay oh, excuse, uh, excuse me it will never false give positive. you a false positive right it'll never give you a false positive so it means if it says it's positive it was it can however give you a false negative so if the if there aren't enough prions if the animal is very early on in its infection it could be that the tissue that they sampled did not have enough prions to detect it so if you actually look at the test results it isn't positive or negative it's detected or not detected mm, okay so so even with the best case scenario, the best tissue, a section of the brainstem, an entire lymph node, even with the best possible tissue in the best possible amounts, we still can't tell one with 100% accuracy if that animal has it or not. So if we go down to a, t- a thing like blood, where the prions are way less concentrated even in an, a, a highly infected animal, and blood is a way more fragile medium than like a, a, a section of brainstem is, if we go down there, our reliability is basically pointless. So what I what I like to tell folks is when they, when they think about that, I say, yeah, it would be nice, but at the end of the day, you'd still have to get it tested with a brainstem to confirm it.
1: Got it. Yeah. So a lot of variability there, it sounds like yeah. in, in a yeah. lot of so, aspects.
0: Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, long story short, if if you got required mandatory testing or if you're curious at all, um, do a good job. Take the head one vertebra down from where it joins in with the skull. Pack it out. If you're like me, I get it. I pack my animals out five to six miles every year because of where I hunt. It's a real pain in the butt, but pack it out. You'll get much more reliable data that way.
1: It seems like if, if this is such a big issue and we do know that it is 100% fatal and that – it can spread from animal animal to animal, and there's all these different things going on. It it just seems like if if and and I'm all about free market and you know less government in a lot of ways, but yeah, it just seems like if 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 this really is what it is, and we have all this data, like that we should probably look at some sort of m- mandatory, like whether it's license tag costs, increases, uh, something to help supplement some of the funding that's going to take to really attack mm-hmm. this and, and and gather the data. I mean, for somebody to have it open in the air, well, you don't have to uh, necessarily test it. It's like, well, h- how are we actually going to make any progress without some sort of really fine line in the sand showing this is what we need to do and this is how we're going to do it? And I guess is is has is, is there been anything as far as like – Discussion with CPW to increase costs. I mean, I know that's always a burden to people. They hate seeing the tags go up, but like this seems like it's something that should be dealt with in a fiery, you know, well <laughs> well planned, you know, yeah. well funded manner. You know,
0: yeah, from your mouth to legislator's ears, Adam. I I, I wish. <laughs> so <laughs> your your point is really well taken, man. Um, and and folks like myself and other conservation groups, we've been fighting this fight for over a decade because you're spot on. When you spend time thinking about this, learning about this, trying to manage this, you recognize this is a great battle of North American wildlife, Um, at least North American big game and cervids. And and half measures aren't going to fix this thing. So by God, we need to throw all the resources we can. And unfortunately, the story has been... Because the disease is so slow moving and I can't go to Congress and say, look, these deer herds have been wiped out by this disease. And because the disease thus far, fortunately, does not infect humans, I can't go to Congress and say this is killing people. And because of that, Congress says, then you know what? It's not that important. Figure it out. Uh, and that's what happened when we lost funding. There used to be $18 million um, of federal funding that went to state fish and wildlife agencies. Half of it went to the captive servant industry. Half of it went to um, the, the, the wildlife agencies themselves to do surveillance and management. But that was lost because this sort of lack of relevance and, and the lack of political attention span. And and then when you take that from a national level to a local level, like here in Colorado, some of the we suffer from some of the same things. Although... At a local level, I feel the infighting among us as users even more. Um, this is not a story that you really want to listen to. I get it. Yeah. I, I hear it from my friends. Even even folks that I hunt with are just like, you know what? Let's not talk about CWD anymore. There's stories from CPW that I've heard where little notes are attached to deer heads that have said, if this ends up being positive, don't call me and definitely don't talk to my wife. Um, there, There's this sort of CWD fatigue that is what we talk about it or, or what we call it in the biological world, that it's it's not a happy story. It's a frustrating story. Um, it doesn't have much play politically. And we often are opposed by those within our own ranks, those that often make a living off of big bucks and big, big bulls. I mean, let's face it. This is Colorado. You don't come to Colorado to shoot a two-year-old doe. Yeah. You come to Colorado to shoot a seven-year-old mature buck. Or our 12-year-old bull. That's why you're here. And when you hear, oh, these are the animals we need to reduce because they have the disease, there's a strong disincentive to say, you know what? Nah, this disease isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. So a combination of all those things over time has led to some infighting and has basically let policymakers, you know, they've looked at us and said, you know what, you guys don't have your story straight and it doesn't seem like even you agree that this is a big deal. So if you can't agree on it, how the heck do you expect me to give you $2 million of appropriation funds to help subsidize the cost of sampling? We're just not going to do it. So to me, that's that's another one of our – one of the things we have to fix internally. Um, I'm battling it nationally. we got four pieces of legislation we've been trying to push through for a couple of years to get funding back to state fish and wildlife agencies. There's been a, a lot of efforts locally. In uh, Colorado in the past and and other states currently that are trying to do the same thing, get general appropriation funds on the basis of wildlife health, because this, this impacts healthy deer herds. If you have a deer herd that's 40% infected with CWD, this affects you if you enjoy watching them in your backyard. Um, so on those grounds, trying to get more funding and support, but it's it's been a push. So I guess, you know, I'd, I'd make a plea to to those listening to this, get involved politically if you can, definitely get involved with your actions. But if you can, get involved politically, whether it be with state representatives, whether it be with your membership through groups like the Mueller Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Boone and Crockett Club, who, whoever you might be involved with, to put some pressure on legislators um, to get behind these actions because- the data is in. We don't have any questions anymore. And I know you were saying earlier, Adam, that we really need data. Yeah, we do. But we know what we need to know now to take action. We know yeah. what this thing will do. We know what happens if you don't mess with it. And we know the economic and, and 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 political threat of this if we if we let it go unchecked. So the time for action is now. We know what we need. We've just got to we've got to kind of join arms as hunters and um, and and wildlife lovers and push this stuff forward.
1: So when you, when you say take action, um, who are you talking about, like reaching out to, writing a state representative? How do you go about doing that? Um, what would you recommend, the easiest way for somebody to take action politically?
0: Yeah. So um, as of right now, I'm trying to think. I may be wrong here, so I'd, I'd encourage your, your listeners to, to look for themselves. I don't know of any piece of legislation this year right now pushing for additional funding. So I think the political action that I think about now is I think there needs to be a coalition of um, – groups that are really vested in Colorado. So, groups anywhere from local chapters of Mulder Foundation, Rockman Elk Foundation to National Wildlife Federation, a very different group of folks that aren't necessarily hunters but have been very active with CWD to um, either start a petition or put some pressure on their local um, representatives to introduce some legislation to get some general fund dollars to Colorado Parks and Wildlife to increase their efforts. I think that kind of grassroots work is what we need done right now um, because I, I don't think there's anything to get behind currently. And this would be a great time to start given all this new data that we have coming in.
1: Got it. Got it. Makes total sense. Um, what is there any sort of foreseeable – I mean obviously we don't know anything yet, but like are scientists actively looking and pursuing – uh, some sort of cure for chronic mm-hmm. wasting disease? Have, have any recent advancements been made? What does that whole side of things look like?
0: Yeah. So, um, wait, wait to bring in a happy note again here, Adam. Um, <laughs> so be, because this is, um, a protein that we're dealing with, unfortunately the, the regular, um, Systems that a mammalian body uses to beat viruses and bacteria, the things that a vaccination plays off of, are just simply not applicable here. So there is no vaccination that can guard against this. Uh, one was tried, believe it or not, and it had no impact. As a matter of fact, it, it seemed to make things worse in some cases. And at best, all it did was keep an infected animal alive longer, which allowed them to shed more prions in the landscape before ah. they finally died. So there's some real unintended consequences to doing that. And and uh, that, that's one of the unfortunate things about this. It's, it's not unlike... Um, well, I haven't seen, some folks often compare it to like a, a cancer. And in some ways it's like it, Many most ways it's not like it. But um, there's even less hope for this than there is for cancers in terms of, of potential treatments because we just can't stop that conversion of one prion into the next. My guess is that's where research would focus on if there is a cure. But let's remember, we've been dealing with this disease in humans and the livestock industry with, you know, the, the mad cow disease and scrapie for over 60 years with billions of dollars of investment and multi-billions of dollars of incentive to create some type of a vaccine or something that would guard against scrapey and mad cow disease. And thus far, all of that has come up empty handed. So um, I'm more of a realist. Uh, Our hope is not there. Um, Our hope is in stopping the spread of it by smart um, actions in terms of um, you know moving carcasses around, not doing things like baiting and feeding and so forth, and then all, a lot of the stuff we've talked about up to this point. Hunters taking action and being a part of the solution so that we manage it at prevalence levels that will not impact overall herd health long term.
1: Man, this is this has all been really good stuff, and I, I've I've really learned a lot and. Um... You know how this how this comes about and what we can do, take action. This has been really great. Before we drop off here, Matt, where where can somebody go to find more about chronic wasting disease? Tell us about the CWD Alliance. Uh, where can we go?
0: You betcha. Um, there's there's a handful of good resources out there. I'll, I'll toot my own horn here um, a little bit and say stop first at the Chronic Wasting Disease Alliance website. That's cwd-info.org. Um. Pretty much type in anything about CWD and our website's going to come up. Um, what you're going to get on that website is the most up-to-date, scientifically defendable information. And I'm emphasizing that because there's a lot of other websites that honestly are cooler and slicker looking and have a lot more opinion pieces. Um, those can be fine. But I would warn listeners that there's a lot of misinformation about CWD because the incentives to not believe that it exists are very, very strong, and I don't blame folks for that. But you should be aware that there's a lot of misinformation. So stop there at um, at CWD uh, um, the Alliance website. There you can get an overview. All of the stuff I talked about, all of the super sciency stuff, is there. And we tried to we tried to write it in like a fifth grade reading level, so it's not too heavy. Look at the CWD overview. Look at the CWD timeline. Look at the CWD basics document. We have an FAQ. Um, that's going to give you a good, a, a very solid foundation, a super solid foundation in the science of, of the disease. And then I would recommend if you're a Colorado hunter, look at what CPW has to offer some great resources there. There's some other groups like the National Deer Alliance, um, quality deer management association that have recently done some work on, um, so, uh, talking more to the hunter and, and some of the things to think about. And, and you can browse some of that. So lots of good information sources. And if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to contact us through the, the Alliance information website. We'll be glad to answer your question or forward you on to some folks that, uh, you might want to talk to.
1: Yeah, that's, that's all good stuff. I was actually checking out the website as well and it's very informational. There's not a lot of, um, there's no political biases. Uh, there's, Correct. There's, there's none of the, uh, The hype there—it's just strictly factual, and it's good information. So, um, and what—and what is the uh, URL? What's the website address there?
0: So it is cwd-info.org.
1: Cwd-info, and I'll and I'll link that to. The show notes here on the website, so everybody can go to it. So um, appreciate it. Well, very cool, Matt. This has been great. I've uh, again, I, I've learned a lot. This has helped me. Hopefully, it'll help a lot of people. Um, you know, take action and and move forward. And at some point, we'll have to have you back on talk some more wildlife management stuff and and do another podcast if you're up for it.
0: I'd love to. And and uh, thank you, Adam, for bringing this issue about. It's a pain in the butt to talk about. You've been patient. You asked some good questions. So thanks for getting this out there to more hunters. I hope they can use it. And yeah, anytime you want to talk about something more cheery,
1: yeah, give me a shout. Be glad to do it. <laughs> Sounds great, Matt. Well, I re- really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you soon. You as well. Bye-bye. All right. And there you have it. Another episode in the books. Big thanks to Matt for coming on the show Man, that was really interesting. I I sincerely enjoyed talking with Matt and 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 just hearing a very unbiased scientific data driven discussion around chronic waste and disease. I again I needed that for myself. And then hopefully you guys learned a thing or two and, and found it interesting and hopefully inspires you to take take further action. I know myself hearing the statistics on Wyoming and left unchecked left unmanaged that's a that's a scary uh percentage 40 to 50 percent of a prevalence rate in deer and elk that's that's insane and it shows you what could happen if we don't do something about it so i encourage you to test your deer test your elk anytime you shoot one whether you're in colorado or not it's only going to help uh only going to help in the long run so that's i guess the one takeaway get your deer and elk tested um, and then also, if you can, voice your opinion. Local congressmen, senators, uh, public officials, anywhere you can, you can get the opinion heard, we, we, we definitely need more funding for this disease. And right now, as Matt explained, it's, it's just not easy. It's not there. So we as sportsmen need to step up. So again, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Big thanks to our partners, Expedition Archery skull brew coffee and outdoor edge knives thanks again for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon